many ways, every other religion in the world, or every idea, even atheism, even secularism, even wokeism, has a ladder that you can climb in order to achieve peace, in order to achieve euphoria, in order to achieve some measure of assurance that would speak against that nagging guilt within, that nagging question within. Right? And every one of them has a ladder. You, 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 you have this rung, you climb that, you, you, you signal that, you take this sacrament, you do this thing, and now there's another ladder. And above this rung, it's a little grainy, but if you listen to the ideas of the world, or the right guru, or maybe whatever the state or the government tells you that you can have that peace or salvation, you climb through that. Now you're going through the clouds, you climb one more ladder, and it's one more ladder, and is the ladder ever finished? This text is not written, when we talk about assurance, it's not like a ladder where you just kind of go one more step to now, okay, I started with Jesus, he died on the cross, and I'm climbing one more ladder, one more ladder, one more event I need to go to, one more revival I need to try, one more sacrament, one more virtue I need to signal, and then I'll, I'll make sure that I keep my assurance. That's the wrong image to look at. That's every other religion. Christianity is not like that. Not only has Christ died on the cross for his elect, for your sins, for all of you, but as he rose again, all of the promises are ours, and they're all ours right now. So in another sense, maybe the metaphor here we could use is this. It's not a ladder looking and going, hoping you can get higher and higher and higher, and every step you still lack that assurance until you find one more thing, whatever normally is popular in the world. It's like we open the hood of a car and you look at the engine. And you say, look, here's all the parts. And they're already all here fitting together. All the tension belts are in place. The gas and the oil have been checked. They're good. And now the car will drive. And we can know why it'll drive. Because it's all right here, all for us right now. What the apostle would have us do is to say, look, there's not some secret test you're passing. It's all right here that's yours for now that you can know. In spite of everything that will happen and has happened. All these powers that you can know that you have eternal life. So Jesus Christ, it's the greatest gift that God could give you is eternal life in Christ, salvation. But one might argue, for the sake of argument, that the second greatest gift God gives you is that you can know that it's yours. You can be sure. You can be confident. There's nothing more miserable. And Jesus says that than a halfway Christian, a Christian who... They believe in Jesus. But they're constantly, they don't have enough, they have enough guilt to know that they're a sinner, but not enough confidence in the Lord, not enough belief in what God has said, that they're constantly looking for assurance of things other than the scripture, what God has revealed. In fact, Paul says, look, if Christ has risen from the dead, we're people all, of all to be pitied. That's a miserable way to live, but God would not have us live miserably. Paul would not have us live that way. And this, to a certain degree, ends the first eight chapters of Romans. This is, a, this is a doxology. It's a declaration. Everything that he's already said, everything he's already laid out is now summarized and given not merely as a didactical sermon or lecture, but as a doxology, a song, a declaration. Something to write on the wall of your heart. Look, this is what I believe. This is what's told to me. I believe this. 
It's true. So, as we walk through this text, here's the big question, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And let's just say right here, this is not just you know, kind of one of those bumper sticker site, site type things where you say, oh, nobody can be against us. Okay, I got that. But no, actually, what Paul does here is he examines it. He summarizes. He itemizes the list. He goes through and he would cause us to go, look, if God is for me, what about this? What about this? Can any of these things be against me? In one sense, he would cause us to test this. For the point is this, if God is for us, who can be against us? The point is, not just that hypothetically, there are ideas or people or wicked governments that are against the church, against the Christian. Not just hypothetically, like a fantasy novel, but actually there really are powers against you. Satan is alive and well. Wicked rulers are alive and well. False believers and false teachers are alive and well. Your own heart that would tempt you into sin is alive and well. Satan would have nothing more. Satan would have you think that, think nothing more than, Satan would have you think two things. One, that other powers are either non-existent, or these powers are so great that they could steal your faith. He wants you to quit the battle, or Satan can't have you quit the battle, he'll have you take a divergent path. An easier path, a path where you try to find that instant insurance, instant gratification, especially in the midst of difficulty, to where you would find an assurance outside of the gospel, outside of Christ. So alluring is the easier path. Marxism, statism, revivalism, or even all the latest ideas of psychology, all the latest self-help gurus. All of them are screaming at us, we have the answer. Signal this virtue. Embrace this idea. Cancel that enemy. Obey this law. We will provide for you not only salvation, but the assurance. It's easy. You lack self-fulfillment and you have emptiness and we have the answer. Or, if you don't follow us, we will come against your greatest fear, and that's a fear that you might die, or you might ha not have peace, or your family might be taken from you, or you might not have the comfort that you desired, and you might be defeated. Friends, there is no lack of leaders you can follow, new methods of spirituality you can embrace, ideas you can bow down to. The irony is, claiming to be for you, these powers are actually against you. Not merely as a human being, they're against all human beings. But as a human being with new birth, with eyes wide open against the church, Satan loves the woke false gospel. Because who is it alluring? Christians in the church. Satan loves that. He loves statism. He loves different ways of pop psychology. He would love for Christians to be falsely assured, or non-Christians to be falsely assured, thinking they really are Christians, and for Christians to have faulty means of assurance so that they're ineffective in the faith and they're constantly feeling guilty or afraid or living in unconfessed sin. Friends, the point is this. Satan doesn't give up his children willingly. He fights for you after you become a Christian. Now the battle begins. What Paul is saying here is that we've already summarized in Romans. It's not that there might be people against us. There are many people against us. Welcome to the battle. Remember, you 
were not at war before you became a Christian. You were at peace with your sin. You were against the Lord, but now that you've become a Christian, now the battle begins. You know that. You've experienced the battle. It's really hard to live for the Lord. It's easy to live for the world. Right? But it's hard to go against the grain of the world. To go against the grain of your family, maybe. To go against even that own desire that you still have for instant gratification. It's hard to do the right thing. Doing the wrong thing is easy. And you know that if you've Maybe more of you become a Christian more recently in life. And you've got patterns of your life that you live under yourself. You know, those are hard patterns to break. It'd be easy to give up. The question is not, are there people against us? But the question really is, are those ideas more powerful? Maybe it could be better stated, can they win? Is there anything in the world which can actually defeat the Christian or tear away your salvation? Can they remove that which was given by the Holy Spirit by new birth? Can a person lose his salvation? Can it be taken away? No, this question will be very difficult, except that the answer is already stated in the first clause. God is for us. Sinners at peace with God are also being held and kept by the love of God. Now, how do you know this? How do you know um, verse chapter 1, or verse, I'm sorry, 31 is true? And that's not just a bumper slogan, bumper, bumper sticker slogan to make you feel good about yourself. Well, now Paul goes into this. Look at verse 32. How do you know? How do you know? Because not because you can just feel it in your heart, but because of what he points us to truth. This is what's already happened. Look at what he says immediately. What does he point to? Does he point some mere idea? Or does he point to actual physical reality? What actually happened in history? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him give us graciously give all things? Now friends, here's the thing to understand that's crucial. For the Apostle Paul, everything was weighted upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There were no end of fanatical religious ideas in that culture, as there are no end of that today. But for Paul and all the apostles, that Jesus Christ died, in and of itself, that isn't even that radical. There are many zealots who will die for anything, right? Look at, in fact, many, many other religions say that that's the point of, um, you find your utopia, you find your, your, your salvation in dying for the cause, right? Christianity does not have a, uh, 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 you know, an edge on that to a certain degree. There are many people who died in war, even died for, as a religious zealot. Either at the hands of another enemy or they've, they've killed themselves for that. In and of itself, Jesus is unique, though his, the form of his death was he died perfectly as a sinner, or as a, as a perfect human being. But what's unique about Christianity, and not just unique, but what makes it true is Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Death was not the final enemy. He had to die to pay the consequences for our sins because death was required for you and I and hell eternal. But what he paid for in six hours on the cross, it was proven because when he died, he was in the grave, but the grave couldn't hold him. Death did not have the fight. Satan couldn't say, well, this is mine. Sin couldn't say, see, another one. In fact, God himself, the Holy Father, he punished Jesus, but not because of Jesus. He punished him for you and I as a scapegoat. But Jesus Christ had to be let out of the grave. Because death is a moral thing. It's something earned by you and I. Jesus 
Christ didn't earn that. Where Adam had failed, Jesus Christ succeeded. He was the first human being to do this. He did that as a representative for you and I. Truly God and truly man. So when he rose again, everything matters. Remember, friends, just a, a quick statement here. If Christianity were a bad idea, were just a bad idea, and he was such a threat, all they had to do was produce a body. It would not have been that difficult. They knew where he was buried, but they could not. He had risen again. We believe this. But it's not a belief that is illogical. It's a belief that's been shown and proven and demonstrated again and again. Now, what does it mean? In this passage, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously give us all things? Does God, look at verse 32, fail to keep us? That is not the question, but here it's, will God not withhold any good from us on the path between our justification and our final salvation? Does he have two kinds of Christians, the peasants and the rulers? Does God play favorites? No, all of his elect, all of his children, he blesses both spiritually and also materially. He graciously gives us all things. He does not withhold any good from any of his children. So friends, if today one of the greatest, I think one of the greatest Temptations of Satan is having you think you're somehow special, right? Everybody else seems to have it together, but not me, right? Everybody, look at those special Christians, those super Christians. Well, if only they knew the guilt within, if they only they knew the temptations that are just so strong. How many times I've failed in this? Maybe God gives good to others, but for me, it's just got some special plan of aesthetic monkism, and I just won't have all the answers to my prayers, and, you know, my, my life is just different, or I'm just going to live in the halfway, I'm just going to be defeated all the time. What's the answer for that? It's not true. It's a lie, right? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for not some of us, not just a few Christians, but all. Will he not also with him graciously give who? All. Give us all things, right? All of the answers to life's problems are given to you, Christian. Not only this, but the plan and purposes that God, for which God created the world, you are part of God's Redemption, part of his restoration of the kingdom. You can have new life in Christ. He has given this to you. We can have hope. We can have marriages which, which last. We can ask for forgiveness of sins. We can, at times, stand up to wickedness. We can know the truth. We can pray. We can live upright lives. Why? God gave his son on Good Friday, the second Adam, the perfect lamb for his elect. That was his plan. Verse 33 moves on. Here's another question. Then you shall bring any charge against God ele God's elect. It is God who justifies. Friends, in the world we live into, sin is defined as that not which is, comes from within, but that which is bad from without. In the therapeutic world, the woke world, there's always an enemy. Somebody else is the problem, ultimately. Maybe your experiences growing up were the problem, or the ultimate problem, I should say. Not that you don't have bad experiences, not that there are enemies out there. I would never say that, but that becomes the ultimate problem. See, I'm good within, everybody else is bad, and if... I just would change around my environment, or if I would uh, cancel that enemy, or if I would put on this virtue, then I could have my true potential. Sin is the trauma inflicted on me by others, or by groups, or by wrong ideas. Anything is the enemy, and if only I would do certain things, I will find relief and peace. Friends, that is not what sin is. That's a lie. Sin is moral, it is legal, it is personal, it is against God's law. Commit the crime, do the time. The Bible is very clear. 
because of sin, not somebody else's sin, but because of our own sin. If you are a perfect person who never sins, I guarantee you, you will not die. Why? Because Jesus rose again. Or if you die, you'll have to be risen from the dead very quickly. The death will not hold you from the grave. Will not hold you. But the point is we all die because die, death is moral. Of course, we inherited the sin nature, so born we are dying, but we also continue the path of our first forefathers. But here we consider the actual charges against us. God gave his son not for under-realized victims, but for criminals. Our sin is law-breaking, and we are all, do, all we're doing is fleeing the lawful authority before we come to Christ. Every bad idea in the world, every distraction is merely self-deception from dealing with the actual problem. The Bible says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, the heart is wicked and deceitful, for deceitful beyond cure. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. Point is, you can't receive Christ until you've admitted, look, the problem is not everybody else, the problem is me. I've earned this. And without Christ, I will face God on judgment day according to God's standards, his law, and I will get exactly what is coming to me. We, live, we also live, even as Christians, in a world of accusations, a world of wrong judgments. They are powerful. They bring doubts. The question here for the Christian is, how do you deal with the actual guilt and the, 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 your past and even present sin? Is there any future punishment? Justification says not only when Christ died, he, paid, he died legally, he died lawfully. He died because... Somebody had to die for a, a perfect lamb had to be sacrificed legally in order for us to be forgiven. Remember, God does not choose to give some salvation and then just ignore their sin. Well, you know, he picks favorites, right? He's a holy God. He's perfectly consistent with his own character. No, he punishes the sin of those he's chosen. Through his son's substitutionary death. But the question is this. Not just how did God forgive sinners. He did not spare his son. Jesus legally paid a debt. Right? It would be the same thing as you and I. You know, we, 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 um, we went before a, a judge because we had swindled and we had, um, I don't know, we had stolen a bunch of money from somebody. And so not only do we have to pay the money back, we got to pay extra money for all the process and everything else. The crime was committed. And we come before the judge and, and we know we're guilty. And we might have told everybody else, well, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent and it's just unfair. But the jury of our peers sees the evidence and they convict us. And our deception's taken away. When we come and the judge says, look, you are guilty as charged. But the price has already been paid for. And you will not do any time. You will not be condemned. Well, everybody in the jury box, everybody else is saying, wait a second, that guy's guilty. He can't do that. Of course he can't. He'd be, an un, he'd be a unjust judge. He'd be a Soros judge. He'd be one of those judges that gets bought off and paid for. Right? We have that in this world. It's corrupt. He'd be picking favorites. And it would be rightly charged against him. He's an unfair judge. But God isn't an unfair judge. He doesn't say you're not guilty. He says you're declared not guilty. You're declared righteous. Why? Because your price, the, the price has been paid. 
Somebody paid the price for your sin. They did the time for the crime that you committed. It's legal. It's free. It's wrapped up. And the question here is not just, did that happen past? But in the future, is there double jeopardy? Will that crime, will those sins still come back to haunt me? The world says they will. God says no. Who can bring a charge against God's elect, past, present, future? None. It is the God who justifies. His, there is no je double jeopardy. Justification is a past tense doctrine. Who can bring a viable charge? None. It's all talk. It's all idle threats. Satan would remind us of our guilt. Would remind us of what we had done really wrong. Even as Christians. And when that happens, you go to the cross and you say, look at what Jesus Christ did on the cross for my sins. It's paid for. Yes, Satan is right. Yes, I've done these things. And yes, I am guilty and was guilty. But I trust and fear the one who chose to love me and send his son to die on the cross for my sins, who willingly died and willingly rose again. Verse 34, who is the condemned? Jesus Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, similarly interceding for us. Now, the question here is kind of the same, but it's maybe a little bit different, a little bit of a nuance different. Maybe here, instead of saying, not did my past sins, can they condemn me? But can any other powers or religious system compete and condemn me? Is, there, is this just one way amongst many? Are there new ideas that will come and say, look, shame on you, Christian. What a fool. We got a new idea. This is a better way. Will we miss the mark? Sadly, you can tell faulty systems or bad theology because they have an overfixation on the type of death that Jesus died. And notice this, you can always tell a faulty religious system, even evangelical system, when they use Christ not as a, uh, as a um, judicial, legal, substitutionary atonement for our sins, but as an example of us for how to atone for our own sins. Okay? Now, that may sound subtle, but it's super crucial. Every other false idea, or every false idea, they never focus on the resurrection what he's already done. It's always looking at the cross and they may look at the cross and they go, look at what a horrible death Jesus died. And that's true. But now they say, now go and do likewise. Right? That is Roman Catholicism. Meaning this. They don't deny the gospel in the sense that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's true. Don't ever say the Roman Catholic Church doesn't say that. They do say that. They believe that. But what they do is they add to it. Why? They add all these other meritorious works that you have to do in order to keep your salvation. And they're outside of scripture, right? Try this sacrament. Do this thing. Go to this mass. The priest every week is going to re-crucify Christ so that in order that you may know that you are forgiven again. So Jesus Christ functionally becomes the best example that we could ever have. But we have to continue functionally to atone for those things or have somebody else atone for them for us. In many ways, the new woke gospel, the new woke religion has the same pattern. Your status is determined by the atonement virtues you signal or merits you must earn. Right? That's why they aren't satisfied if you just embrace certain things about race or ethnicity. Now you've got to embrace things about sexuality and transgenderism and government and Marxism and state and all those things, it's all part of the whole. You will be happy, you will be satisfied, you will have people that won't be angry at you and 
more, if you would just embrace all these things, put on this, put on this, and you will be happy. Your sins will be atoned for. And friends, let me say, confess, confess, professing Christians can actually fall for this. Why? Because they still are mired with guilt. They look at the cross and all their sins and they imagine ways to appease God or make themselves look forgiven, forgiven worth, I, I, I re, or forgiveness worth. I realize for many of you, myself included, maybe the system you grew up in, even in the church, that you were constantly wrestling with assurance. Right? Have I been good enough? Have I done enough? You know, churches maybe where the traditions were so crucial that you almost wondered, is that as important as the gospel, right? Or where they've added to certain, um, you know, the, 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 the principles of wisdom become, uh, you know, laws for the next generation. You know, so meaning like uh, a classic one would be, you know, one generation said, well, well, you know, there's a major problem with alcohol or alcoholism in our culture, which is true. Or drunkenness and so then the next generation says, well, no Christian can ever drink. And that becomes the new law for that next generation. And there's other things just like that. They don't just become good principles and good ideas or, or wisdom. They become law. And you tend to think again and again, well, geez, I, I guess I've got extra things that I've got to atone for my own sins are. And they're things that are past the cross. It's what a, a good Christian now does. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a law of God that we must follow. But it's the moral law of God according to Scripture. Not other people's ideas or additions to scripture. Why do you not have assurance? Because you can't live up to that system. That's why people are constantly guilty and they're looking for, again, when was that time that I walked the aisle or prayed the prayer and that's my assurance? No, it's not about you. Here it's all grounded in Christ and what he has done. Get this, get this. Every other system is, is functionally self-focused. Somehow I, I need to overcome this myself. Or prove to God. That's not grace. Grace is what begins in Christ and it ends in Christ. And we are now when we serve the Lord and we obey God, we repent. We're doing this in Christ Jesus in our union with him. Friends, here it says it in verse 34. He was raised. The resurrection moves us from gazing inward to looking forward. Friday is in the rearview mirror. It really happened. Jesus Christ actually died and was raised. He ascended and now it says he's enthroned. The resurrection of Christ physically proved defeat over all the enemies of God, our enemies. The greatest being death and hell. All of this happened in history past. Where is Jesus today? Here he is reigning and interceding for us. He is doing great work. But not work for our justification. That happened in ages past. But now for our glorification and sanctification. He is interceding. What's he doing? Reminding you and assuring you of the fact that you are justified in him. This is the great work of Christ. To bring us to the body of Christ. To bring us to church. To infuse your mind through prayer with the works of God. With the truth of God. He is keeping and preserving us as king. He is loving this. Loving us. And he's doing all of this in love. Therefore, looking forward. In our life before us, so what Paul is basically saying here is, look, we focused a lot now on justification. Not that we move away from that, but now he says, look, look forward. There's a path before us. And looking at the path before us, he says, look, there are dangers coming. Can any of these things that you don't even know about that are going to happen in your life, but you can predict might happen, can any of these things um, separate you from God's love now? Now that we look at the resurrection, look forward, and knowing that Christ is interceding, Paul says, look, between Heaven, which we're not there yet, 
in our past life or our present life, is there some sort of barrier that's going to happen or some power that will come and sever us from the love of God? And what Paul doesn't say here, he doesn't say, well, hypothetically, there might be some. No, he itemizes this list. Look, look at verse 35. Who, and he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword or sword? Now, the question is not just, are these difficult things for some people? But you as a Christian will face all of these things. And we as a church will face all. This is a gamut, in one way, the summary of what it means to walk in the world now as a Christian, an enemy with Satan. Being tempted by the world, having all the power of Satan to throw at you. Some of these are power and just temptation. Some of these are physical. And they all involve that which would try to take away our assurance. The question here is, can any of these things disunify or divide us? Can any of these things separate or sever our union with Christ? They try to. And there are warnings, real warnings about this danger. And yet, can they do this? And here's what Paul says. Here is truth, truth that should penetrate your heart. So Christian, look at this list. Will tribulation separate you from the love of God? The answer is no. Check. Why? Jesus Christ died and rose again. Will distress? The answer is no. Check. Why? Jesus Christ died and rose again. What about persecution? What about facing cancel culture or even death or jail time because you're a Christian? And let's say because you're a Christian, you lose friends or you lose your home which has happened in other places of the world, is happening today. Or you lose your job because you won't, you won't give in to all of the latest demands of the culture. Or you say something that you thought was kind and good and you found out, well, some triggered person got angry and you lose your job over something you didn't even realize. That happens too today. And you're like, wow, I didn't say anything radical. I just tried to say what's common sense truth. That's from the Bible. Thought that's how we operated. Find out, well, no, no, that's not the case anymore. And that's hard. And you don't just gloss over those things and go, wow, you know, no big deal. I like to be pretty. I mean, that's the stuff of the you know, fantasy movies, right? Real life, that's hard stuff. And it may, you may not get a quick answer. And it may be very costly. And your your lifestyle may not come back again. But the question is, this, are those powers, will they separate you from the love of God? No. Or will God continue to love you throughout those things? Yes, he will. Why? Jesus Christ died and rose again. How about physical want? How about famine? No, check. Jesus Christ died and rose again. What about desolation or nakedness? You just don't have the things that were promised you, the things you, 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 you earned. Stuff is taken away from you. Famine happens. No, check. Why? Jesus Christ dies again. died and rose. Danger. No, check. How about peer pressure for you young people? How about being rejected and not fitting in because you're a Christian? Because you won't give in to the, the, the ways that, or you won't laugh at the jokes that people are telling you. And it feels weird. And you don't like feeling weird. And you don't like not fitting in. And it's really easy to give in. And you just don't want to be the odd guy out. But if you do the right thing, weird in the eyes of the world does that separate is that the worst death you could have peer pressure death 
Will that separate you from the love of God? No. It will not. Why? Jesus Christ died for us again. Friend, when you're young people, if you're dealing with stuff like that, and you will, you remember the gospel. You remember the good. How about violence or sword? No, check. Why Jesus Christ died and rose again. Notice here, in summary, he lists seven things. Why? I think it's because seven is the complete number in biblical numerology. If you notice in, in the Bible, numbers don't mean everything, but they also don't mean nothing. And one of the things you see is often these lists include seven things, not always. But whenever you see seven, it means completeness. So what he's saying here is that, look, he's describing the whole gamut of difficult human experience as a Christian. It's not like he's going, well, you know, I just thought of seven, but Paul's going to years later, geez, I wish I would have thought of that eighth or ninth. I never thought about that. No, he's saying, no, it's like anything else in all creation, everything you could experience, it's all included. Man-made, fallen creation, Satan delusions, the cursed world, all types of suffering. The great love that God has in his relationship with his people not merely as servants, but adopted sons. You may not feel like God loves you, but he does. And here it is highlighted. In fact, 36 summarizes this. And it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Friends, this world will be suffering. And as a Christian, you take on a new type of suffering previously unknown to you. Let me say, today in the culture we live in, 2023, I don't need to describe for you the fact that you recognize what we recognize. This world has been increasingly lawless. I've been a pastor now, this is 21 years. And I, and I have, I mean, it, the beginning we were playing, when I first came into ministry, we were playing Chubby Bunny and um, uh, uh, having all kinds of fun little youth group games. And now we're dealing with transgenderism. And, and there is something demonic in the air. Not that it wasn't there before, but there's an increased lawlessness in our culture. You know that you feel it. You see it. All you need to do is look at the Minnesota government itself, and you will see an absolute destruction of human life and an absolute uh, making lawful everything which God would condemn and would destroy human beings. Everybody suffers from the laws that our government is making. We see the anger increasing. We see craziness reigning. We even see some that are going to, in the name of Jesus, do the opposite. They're just going to take up violence for violence' sake. Out of a cultural Christianity. But let me say this, that the worst, and I would say the most tempting, sometimes the most difficult type of suffering or slaughtering you could take on is generally not from secular government. It's from religious people. Remember the people who killed Jesus? Roman, Rome didn't care. Pilate didn't care. He just wanted to appease. He was just getting involved. He's like, fine, I'll just give you a scapegoat. Because he didn't want, the, he was trying to appease the Jewish people who were so mad at Jesus. Right? Let me say this. The worst is not from the secular non-Christians, but those who claim Christianity and they cancel you anyway. Or they say you're too judgmental. Or you're just too narrow-minded. They will malign your motives. They will cancel you. They will Manipulate and misrepresent you. They will mock you. Psalm 44, 22, this is a summary of a quota. The question is not, are things bad? Does it look like we're winning? Often the answer is no. But appearances are deceiving. 
And this is why our hope and assurance must be found in the gospel. The gospel is always applicable. Friends, let me say without difficulty, we would not see our need for the gospel or the assurance we need. They can only come through prayer. And in these times, we cry out to the Lord. We look back at these times, we say, Lord, I didn't like the affliction I went through, but man, I prayed a lot more during that time. And I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to pray for your strength and your grace. Does it look like we're winning? No. But looks can be deceiving. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Friends, you look back at history. And Paul, no doubt, as he wrote this back in AD 60, AD 70, I don't know the exact date he wrote it, 30 years after Christ, many of those who had seen Jesus were still alive. He didn't see Jesus as risen, but he would have been around at the time. He persecuted the church. He hated the church, so he was converted. But Paul had already seen the gospel, in spite of great persecution, make great inroads into the culture. In 2,000 years of history, we've seen wherever the gospel penetrates and changes hearts, people change. They change the way they deal with their, with their enemies. They change the way they live. They change the way they look at health. They change the way they look at the body. Right? It wasn't secular pagan cultures have not come up with what Western Christianity and Western Christian cultures has come up with in the last 500 years. Now, is it a mixed bag? Certainly it is. But the ending of the slave trade, the increase in medicine, even in the last hundred years, all the technological increases, they've come because people have had renewed minds to think and use their minds for the goodness of mankind and the glory of God. Not everybody, certainly, who's a Christian who's done that. But even the freedoms that we have as a nation came because whether the founding fathers are Christian or not, or born again or not, doesn't matter. They were influenced by a view of mankind and a view of government that said, we do not trust mankind. That's why we have limited government. And they said, look, we want to have a place where people um, have the freedom to work and live and raise families and flourish. And laws that reflect God's word. Friends, as Paul was writing this, and now we look back at 2,000 years. Maybe in the world we live in today, in 2023, it looks like we're going backwards. And we may be in some ways. But it won't be for long. God has always won. He always will win. So you and I keep the faith. Do not let the things of this world cause you to stumble or doubt your faith. Why? Because Paul grounds it all in what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago. This assertion is a personal testimony. It must be stated not merely on the wall of the church, but on the lips of your heart. It is assurance to look back, friends, at your own life, even as a Christian. If you were to be honest with yourself, you, you've had many defeats, but have you not also seen how the Lord has sustained you and has grown your faith? And can you not be honest, maybe at times in which you were defeated, or isn't often our own unbelief and doubt that creates into the picture? We make hard situations infinitely more difficult because we don't go to the Lord in prayer. We look to everything else first. We spend an infinite amount of time worrying, and then we realize, oh, I should be praying, right? And then you regret all that time you wasted. We need to be people of the truth. We are more than conquerors. We don't just barely survive. And we don't just conquer here on earth. There is an other outworldly, heavenly kingdom beyond time and nature that is our inheritance and our election. There's an eternal kingdom. So today, if you die, you know that your time on earth is over. But if you are a Christian, you are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. 
and you'll be entered into the gates of heaven. And at judgment day someday, you will, you will look and you will have Christ to be your ambassador and your, and your savior and your, and your judge and your justification. So now, as we draw to our conclusion today, we summarize. In many ways, verse 31 through 37 is a summary of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But this is plural for the whole church. What about you personally? And here Paul changes the tense. Notice this. He goes from us to I. So meaning he goes from plural, everybody else, to what about me? He makes it personal. Do you believe this, Christian? These words that Paul says are a personal testimony. They're not just for him. They're for all Christians. You move it just from everybody else to me. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is an assurance passage, not just that other people are saved, but that I know that I am also with those other people. I am saved. Who can be against us? No one. Nothing can break the union we have in Jesus Christ. Nothing real, nothing created, nothing angelic, nothing demonic, nothing imagined, no threats, no fears. Even when violence or loss or injustice happens, nothing will sever the union that we have been given. Why? This union was purchased by Jesus Christ. God gave Christ. He came into history. He lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. It was all part of God's plan, and it was necessary. And he grants forgiveness to the worst of sinners. To each person who will call out on him, who will repent and turn from trusting in all the things of the world and trusting in themselves and recognize and realize, according to the law of God, I am condemned. But is there a way? Yes, there is. It's been provided. I will believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Not only will I believe and trust, but I can have the assurance. These truths and promises are based upon historical, physical reality. Know this, friends, and apply this. And here's the application. I don't have 10, 10, 10, 10 little bullet points on principles for living here. But the application is for the heart. Be assured. Be assured, Christian. And if you're not assured, look to Jesus Christ, what he did. And believe that. And apply that and say, this is for me. And I will believe and trust in you, Jesus Christ. And friends, if you're not a Christian today, there is no other way. You think you're just kind of mildly religious? Look to Jesus Christ. There is no halfway. You're either fully forgiven or you're not forgiven at all. You're either fully justified or you've got to face God and try to justify yourself. But Jesus Christ, this is the gospel, and he grants it to us. Believe him today. And give yourself this good counsel. Let these truths fill your heart and reorient your life. Friends, Easter morning happened. 2,000 years ago, and the application is for you today. Not just that you, that there was eternal life granted, forgiveness granted, but that you could know that you have that forgiveness granted. So let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for granting us this glorious morning to gather together as the body of Christ. And I pray today that you would give assurance to each and every Christian here. I pray, Father, that there is any wrong ideas, any 
fault past sins that we are fixating on. Any bitternesses towards people that we will not let go of. I pray, Father, that we would take all of those things to the cross of Jesus Christ. That we would bring all our sins before you. And that we would recognize those are already paid for in full. Father, help us to live not as defeated people, but as hopeful people. Reorient our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ and give us your assurance. In your name we pray.